folks, and welcome back to Return to the Telepodcast, a show about shitty horror movie sequels, prequels, reboots, uh, etc. I'm Bryce Patterson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Kevin Serrano Echevarria. Hey, Kevin. Hello, Bryce. How are you doing today? You know, I'm doing all right. I like, it's been like rainy today um, in a way that's sort of pleasant because it was I don't know, 90 degrees <laughs> earlier this week. It was, yes. I have not been outside at all, but I can see that it's dreary outside and it makes me very tired. I want to take a nap like right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've been kind of thinking the same thing. Cool. Well, so, so this week we are trying something sort of different uh, from, from our usual approach to the show. Um, so we're going to look at the different adaptations of Stephen King's It. Uh, so Tommy Lee Wallace's 1990 miniseries, which I, I guess I think a lot of folks who are around our age only ever really experienced it as a movie. But I guess it was it was shown, I think, two nights in a row uh, and it was made for television. I mean, it came out um, in 1990, right? So that's like mm-hmm. six years before I was born. So I only ever really experienced it as a movie. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's kind of most of the folks that I've talked to. I've said like miniseries, and they're like, "Wait, there was a miniseries?" And like they've right. seen it, right? It's just that we right. all, yeah, experience it as a film first. There's um, actually two miniseries. The other one was made in India. That's an adaptation of it, but we're only going to be talking about the American one. I didn't even know that existed. There is. I looked it up, and it was Sony. Uh, I want to watch it eventually, but yeah, it's an Indian adaptation of it. I feel like that's like a bonus episode in the making. <laughs> that would be a great bonus episode. Yeah, but yeah, so we're, we're going to look at the 1990 miniseries. And then I looked up how to pronounce this. I think it's Andy Muschietti, um, his 2017 and 2019 films. So It Chapter 1 and It Chapter 2. And a couple of just quick notes. So neither of us has read the novel. And I, I feel like, I don't know, if you're a diehard fan of the novel, I apologize in advance. Um, it's a big chonker of a novel, and I don't have time for that. I'm a grad student. And then the the one other note, I guess, is just we're going to be talking about some some kind of rougher topics in this one than I think we have uh, in in previous episodes. So, like a trigger warning for we'll talk about self harm, we'll talk about hate crimes, and then probably sexual assaults as well. Yeah. Well, so uh, let's let's go ahead and start with I guess our our history with these movies. So. Kevin, had you seen these? And maybe just generally, what are what's your experience with Stephen King? So I saw it, like the miniseries, when I was really, really, really young, uh, to the point where I like barely remember any of it. And then I rewatched it again, um, I think when I was like a 19, 20-ish. So only like five, six years ago or so. And I forgot that it wasn't, really scary in the least bit (laughs) like when i was a child it was really really frightening that's all i remember about it is that i was like really scared of it Uh, and then when i rewatched it i was like this is hilarious tim curry is amazing and i love everything about this which is very fitting as to like how the story of it works out as well my history with stephen king is uh i mean mixed like i i like a lot of his film adaptations, Carrie especially, I love a lot. The 1970s Carrie with Sissy's Paycheck, I adore. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read a couple of his books. I read Pet Cemetery and I read The Shining. 
both of which I like, but felt bloated, which is, I feel like a lot of um, people's complaints about Stephen King. Uh, and I also watched The Shining, uh, which I know you don't like The Shining, the movie, uh, but I really, really like it. I, I especially like uh, Shelley Duvall's performance in The Shining is is so good. Uh, but yeah, have some history with Stephen King, have some history with it. Pretty mixed feelings about Stephen King as a writer, but his adaptations are generally pretty good, except for the modern adaptations, which we will get to later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I had almost the the reverse experience with with it. Um, I saw the 2017 film in theaters, and I'd never I'd never read the book, I'd never seen the the miniseries, and I I had a blast with it. Um, you know, I mean, I think that there's like kind of it was like right around you know when Stranger Things was absolutely everywhere, um, mm-hmm. and obviously you know they cast Finn Wolfhard, so I feel like they very much knew that when they were making the film. Absolutely. Um, and he is, I think, the best character and the best actor in in it. Chapter one. Oh, yeah, um, definitely. But yeah, yeah. I uh, so I, I'd seen that, and then I think I watched the miniseries, and then I went and saw it. Chapter two, also in theaters with a couple friends of mine. Uh, yeah, you know, around the time that it came out, and I remember within the first ten minutes being like, "Oh shit!" And well, I yeah, I'm sure we'll yeah. get into into yeah. why. But I, I, I remember kind of walking out afterwards and just being like, yeah, that was kind of fun. And just feeling like that was fucking terrible. <laughs> Pretty much. That was a movie. People paid money to see it. People paid I money, paid to, money fund to see it. it. <laughs> <laughs> That's your fault. I only watched uh, it part one in theaters. And I was, and and from that, I was like, I'm not feeling this. I'm not going to watch part two. And the first time I watched part two was like a few days ago when we watched it together. I was very thankful I did not pay any money to see it part two. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah. And then Stephen King broadly. Uh, yeah. I've read Carrie and I've read The Shining and I think some of his his short stories. I also I tend to prefer like film adaptations. I also love the De Palma version of Carrie uh, yeah. Misery. I haven't seen in a good number of years, but I really enjoy that. Yeah, The Shining. I um, it's one of those movies that I feel like I should love, given everything else that I do. But it just doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me. But I'd be interested. Uh, at some point, we should do an episode on like The Shining and Doctor Sleep. I think. Um, yeah, I have a lot of opinions about The Shining, so mm-hmm. mostly positive. But yeah, I also just yeah. love just getting back to just talking about Stephen King real quick, like how his how he writes like horror stories in that like he'll have the monster be this like teenager who's a spawn of Satan, who's also has telepathic abilities. And then another story, it'll be like a dog with rabies. And then another, <laughs> yeah. and another story, it'll be like uh, a Romani stereotype that just curses a fat person to get thinner until he dies. Like it, it's just all over the place in terms of everything. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I have some mixed feelings about Stephen King. I think uh, on like a base level, his prose is just, it always feels like a little clunky to me. Um, yeah. And I think when you adapt it to film, it often just like works better for me. But I, I do respect, you know, that like both his body of work is is enormous and does have that range, right? That yeah, Cujo is just the, the monster is rabies. <laughs> monster was rabies all along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think there are things that are cliches now that I think, like, Stephen King essentially invented or popularized, you know? Right. 
Um, and so I wonder, like, if I'd been born like 20 years earlier, I probably would have been like a diehard Stephen King fan. Maybe right. actually, I don't, I don't know. But I don't know. I don't know about that. But yeah, I, I get what you're trying to say. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so I will also summarize the general plot of it briefly. Um, and then I thought it would be valuable to just like quickly break down all of the major characters or basically the members of the losers club. Cause there's a bunch of them and they have really similar names. They do. Um, I will definitely mess up their names at some point. This is as much for us as it is for, you know, anybody listening, I guess. After the disappearance of his younger brother, Georgie, Bill, a middle school student in Derry, Maine, becomes obsessed with multiple disappearances of children in the town. It turns out that an evil extraterrestrial being is taking the form of a clown called Pennywise and preying on both the fear and the flesh of the local kids. Bill and his friends, uh, who call themselves the Losers Club, band together to defeat Pennywise and then 27 years later, they returned to Derry to take on Pennywise uh, for a second time. So I, I, that's that's the general thing. I guess we, we can, in a minute, get yep. into you know some of the differences between the adaptations. But as far as the Losers Club, uh, so we have Bill, who has lost his younger brother, Georgie, and has a stutter. Um, and then in adulthood, he becomes like a really famous novelist. He's the Stephen King self-insert character, yes. very obviously. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Beverly comes from an abusive home and is the only girl in the Losers Club. Uh, later in life, I think she becomes a fashion designer. Um, <laughs> and so she becomes really successful in that field, but also has a relationship with a horribly abusive, uh, I don't know if he's a husband or a boyfriend or, or what have you. We have Ben, who's the new kid in school, uh, and he gets bullied pretty much constantly for being fat. And he goes on to become a successful, like, super fit architect. Uh, in the newer adaptations, he also has this horrible goatee. And he is obsessed with local history. Richie is the cynical kind of comic relief character. So Finn Wolfhard in Chapter 1 and Bill Hader in Chapter 2 of the new films. He's played by Seth Green as a child in the miniseries. Oh, yeah. He's the only, only actor besides Tim Curry that I recognized. Yeah. Uh, so then we have Eddie, who's a hypochondriac, uh, and he has this incredibly overbearing mother. Uh, and as an adult, he's still struggling to escape her shadow. So in the newer film, we see that like he's married a woman who looks and acts exactly like his mom. We have Mike, who's the only black member of the Losers Club, um, and he lives on the outskirts of town. I think he's homeschooled. Um, yeah. And he has to deal with just extreme racism from the local bullies. Um, And he ends up being, he's the only character who stays in Derry after they defeat it for the first time as teenagers. Uh, And he's the person who calls the rest of the Losers Club uh, when murders start happening in Derry again, 27 years Mm -hmm. later. Then finally, we have Stanley, who is a Jewish Boy Scout. Uh, And he's generally kind of the most timid member of the group. And he, when he gets the call from Mike that Pennywise has returned, he commits suicide. Uh, And so he only very lightly features in part two of both the miniseries and also part two of the new films. Out of all the Losers Club characters, he also doesn't very prevalent in the first, like, part of the films either. 
Yeah, he's kind of maybe the most minor character out of the Losers Club. Maybe the one other character, and I don't even remember his name, but there's the insane, like, psychopath uh, bully yeah. in Derry who just terrorizes the kids and is just, it's- like, He's so over the top. I don't I don't even know what to do with him. Um, he's the quintessential Stephen King bully where it's like ramped up to 11 where he's not just like a bully. He's a murderous psychopath. Yeah. And he returns in part two as well uh, to try yeah. and take on the try and basically murder the Losers Club one by one. Yep. And fails miserably. Cool. So um, what do we think makes it a classic? And I, I mean, again, because neither of us has read the novel, I think it's pretty maybe like, why is the miniseries considered so classic? But also right. um, part one, I think, was the highest grossing horror film of all time when it came out. I could be wrong on that. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, I don't that's... I don't know how part two did in comparison. Right. Hopefully worse. I think what makes it a classic is that it very much deals with very universal problems in a very like imagistic sort of symbolic way where like Pennywise is meant to represent like this both like childhood trauma and like trauma that people suffer especially people who are different like the losers and losers club uh trauma that they suffer in small towns so because like everyone pretty much feels like an outsider and because nearly everyone feels like they were raised in a small town even if they're from like fucking colorado springs everyone can kind of connect to that a little bit along with that like you kind of have like a whole cast of characters that like you can kind of identify with to an extent like you're either like the you either are were the hypochondriac kid or the funny kid or like the awkward fat kid or like the girl or like the minority I feel like that's one big reason why it was successful. Um, the movie itself, the miniseries itself, I feel like was also successful because Tim Curry played Pennywise so well. He did this like really great balancing act of like being funny because he's a clown. He's supposed to be funny and being horrific to the point where I'm pretty sure he gave like a whole generation of children like a fear of clowns. So I feel like that's a big reason why... Uh, the miniseries was really successful and why it was really, really iconic. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree on, on all points. I think, I think it's just like a really good underdog story and, and a really good coming of age story uh, on some level. Um, Yeah. That like each of the characters, they all come from just horrible families. Um, Like everyone in Derry, except for the losers club are just terrible people. And at times for me, that's sort of, I, it's hard for me to suspend my disbelief. Um, so the bully characters say is like a psychopath on like a level that's like, oh my God, <laughs> you, know, you know, it's right. like hard for me to believe both that this kid exists and that there's a killer clown on the loose. But by and large, right, I think that like, yeah, I think you're right that like, it's easy to kind of find parts of the losers club that you can sort of relate to and, and connect to and they're easy to root for. And we do experience their journey sort of of leaving behind a certain kind of innocence over the course of, you know, part one of both the miniseries and the new film. And and I think that there's there's a mirroring, right, that like the internal struggles that they deal with, um, Pennywise is able to reflect those back at them. And so there's this really clear connection of like Bev's father is horribly abusive 
And so that uh, is both mirrored in later in life, her uh, romantic partner being horribly abusive, but also Pennywise taking taking on that role. And, and I think that's a, a, a classic kind of move in horror, right? That like whatever mm-hmm. are like the internal darknesses of a character are made external in another character and we're forced to face them. Yeah, it, it feels like a very natural character arc for, for like most of the characters in the film. And it's like ultimately hopeful at the end because like the characters who do end up surviving overcome Pennywise, who is like a representation of their fears and traumas. So it's like they're overcoming all the shitty things that happened to them when they were younger. So it, it kind of like resonates with people on that sense as well in that even though it's like a deeply disturbing horror story, it, it still like has a at least somewhat happy ending. Yeah, well, I I was noticing actually really strongly the other night when we were watching it that like part one in particular really just follows the arc of a Hollywood blockbuster. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we have a kid who feels sort of out of place or in this case, you know, like seven kids who feel out of place um, who have to band together and use the power of friendship, you know, to to pretty much uh, some sort of external enemy. So it's very much like a, like big budget Hollywood story that just also happens to include a killer clown. You know, it's, it I think has more in common with the Goonies than it does with something like the fly or like Texas chainsaw. Oh yeah, definitely. It, It feels a lot like stand by me. If stand by me had a killer clown. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. The other thing I would say with it is that it it has this generally I actually I have mixed feelings about this on some level, but it mm-hmm. blends a range of different genres, specifically maybe different subgenres of horror. Uh, right. So so Pennywise taking the form of whatever the characters fear the most means that it's not just killer clown horror the whole way through. It's like uh, right. we have like a werewolf or we have the kind of leper character. Uh, that's mm-hmm. like a walking disease. And Pennywise himself is both like funny and scary, you know, and there's uh, a, a kind of push and pull between comedy and horror throughout. There's both like a lot of tension releases within the film, uh, which I think just makes it more watchable. I At times, and I think we'll get into this, that like structurally, I think there are moments where the the comedy feels out of place. Or it's not able to actually be as harrowing as it feels like it should be because their characters need to like stop and like wisecrack for a second. Right. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And it's also like not even just doing like comedy and horror. It's like, especially in the, in the uh, miniseries and kind of towards the end of the second part of a part two, it starts to bring in like cosmic horror Mm -hmm. and like the fact that Pennywise is this like, alien being of fear that feeds off of the fear of people uh and is this weird like alien spider sort of creature i don't know i don't know how it works in the book but like in the films it does feel like weirdly out of place to like suddenly have this like cosmic alien insectoid like horror thing being at the core of like everything that's happening yeah yeah when i think too it in moments really hangs like right on the edge of surrealism. Uh, yeah. You know, in the miniseries, there's a scene, I think it's the hypochondriac kid is in the shower after gym class and Pennywise kind of like comes up out of the floor and it's this hilarious kind of stop motion sort of moment. 
Um, but it is also very much surrealist, I think, in the same way that moments in Nightmare on Elm Street feel very surrealist. And I think that ends up being part of the charm of it as well, is that there's all these different things kind of going on. I uh, I was thinking about this the other night, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it, but I kind of feel like it is almost pop horror, that it, it feels like it's almost aimed more at non-horror fans who like stuff that's like somewhat creepy, or maybe not, maybe like people who aren't horror diehards, that it, it follows a generally kind of optimistic plot arc, or at least particularly for chapter one, that it generally ends with everything sort of being okay and order being kind of restored. And then it, it mushes together all these different horror sequences, but they're generally pretty short. So, you know, it's kind of like something scary for a moment, and then you have a lot of time to catch your breath. No, I'd agree with that. Um, not only just because, like, the structure of the film is, again, like we said, like, more akin to the Goonies than, like, I don't know, Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, but also just because, like, the way in which everything kind of takes place with that makes any sense. Like the way in which, first of all, there's not really a lot of killings. And when there are killings, at least in the mini series, when there are like people dying, it's very like PG rated. Like it's just someone getting sucked up into like a tube or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that it does like, it's so universal. I feel like it's trying to like reach everyone and not just like horror diehards. But yeah, no, I I would definitely agree that it's very much trying to like get to as many people as possible instead of just, I don't know, people who would appreciate its horror aspects more. Yeah. And, you know, I think what it is, is if so if we're talking about kind of plot arcs, um, I think a lot of horror is based around some kind of a descent. You know, it's so like the characters yeah. at the beginning of Texas Chainsaw are generally OK And then the film is them being stripped down to like their most kind of animalistic core trying to survive and most of them die. Uh, And I would say most, uh, probably most horror does that, that it's characters who are at least moderately okay that descend into darkness kind of. It is very much the reverse that like the Losers Club is already, you know, they have these horrible families, they're bullied by this utter psychopath. Um, and then the clown is introduced, but by overcoming that, they actually end up in a better state than they were before. You know, they come out of isolation and into community. Whereas I think so yeah. much of horror is about a community being split apart. You know, your group yeah. of dumb teenagers that just want to party and get murdered by Michael Myers. It, it's it's not often where like in a horror movie, you're rooting for the underdog. Like in in it like you have seven underdogs that you're hoping are gonna like live by the end of it uh and i feel like when i was watching like i don't know texas chainsaw or something like that i was just kind of wondering who is going to be killed next and how and how all these dumb horny teenagers are stupid yeah yeah when i think it comes back to you say texas chainsaw that like the the Sawyer family are very much the downtrodden of the plot. Yeah. You know, they're, they're the people who've been pushed to the edge of society and have kind of become something grotesque to survive. Whereas, and, and so the kids are sort of culpable by like coming into this place that they shouldn't. It is different. Cause it's like the kids are on some level kind of innocent in the plot. And mm-hmm. it's just like the place where they have lived and grown up has like a darkness underneath. So like they're yeah. not culpable in the same way, maybe. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. I feel like 
that's a whole reason why there's like such a demand for maybe backstories on these like movie monsters like Michael Myers. I think that like it, it's because like I, it, to some extent, everyone kind of connects them a little bit in the fact that they're like the downtrodden, uh, that they're the underdogs, even though they're the ones that are doing the killings. And there really isn't like a whole lot of like, I don't know. I feel like I don't really care a whole ton about like Pennywise's backstory very, very much. He's kind of a representation of just like all of these things. But like he himself as a character doesn't have depth and I kind of don't want him to have depth. Yeah. Yeah. Like we there's never like a moment of pathos around Pennywise yeah. uh, in the same way. I mean, I keep coming back to I think Leatherface is so fascinating because he feels tragic on some level. Yeah. Um and you're right. Yeah. Like Pennywise is, is always in control until, you know, the losers club, you know, band together and use, you know, the power of friendship and big sticks to like beat him down. Pretty much. Yeah. He, he, he feels much more like, I don't know, a force of nature than like some person who has this deep traumatic backstory. Yeah. And maybe, maybe what we're hitting on here is that horror villains tend to have some sort of tragedy and then the the events of the film come out of like the cycle of that tragedy repeating you know i'm thinking like most ghost stories it's like somebody had something awful happen to them they died and weren't able to move on and then they you know push that that horribleness onto the next person it's like the woman in black is like this horrible traumatic life she dies and then wants kind of revenge from the afterlife and i think that's that's very common in, in in a lot of horror uh, and yeah, it is different. You know, Pennywise is this kind of cosmic being that has no, doesn't really need a motivation. I guess it just, he just wants to, you know, eat your fear and also pretty the rest much. of you. Yeah. His motive is that he wants to eat. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Cool. Any, any other thoughts on why it is kind of a classic story? No, but I think we went into it pretty deep. We went into it pretty deep. Ew. Nice. Well, so I, I think let's talk about how these adaptations differ. Um, and then also, I guess I, I need to pause for a second. I am baffled that the 2019 film, uh, It Chapter 2, doesn't have more people hating on it. Kind of. Um, I know. I, I feel the exact same way. Like, I, I've like read some of the reviews and it's like definitely like more negative than it part one, which is good at least, but it's not like astoundingly just like garbage, just everything that it, I feel like it deserves. Cause it's like, it, it, it doesn't, at least for me, it doesn't work as a horror story at all. And it very much does not work as a film in general. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I guess I feel like, I would expect there to be more of a sense kind of culturally of like, man, what the fuck happened with part two? And that, that right. doesn't really seem to be the broad consensus. And I'm surprised by that. So I guess, yeah, let's talk about how the adaptations differ. And I guess that'll probably lead us into why we think it chapter two is such a shitty sequel, even though right. I know you don't love it. Chapter one. I don't love it, but I don't detest it. It's a good, yeah. like two out of five stars for me. Yeah, that's fair. I, I, it's, it's a little higher for me, but, but, but I think that's a fair point. I think what I want to talk about is the, the way that the plot structure works in, in the different adaptations. 
So, right, if we think about the miniseries, it's split into two parts, but they're both, uh, part one essentially is each of the characters getting a call from Mike, which prompts mm-hmm. a flashback to, you know, the traumas of their youth. And it sort of goes back and forth on those for for pretty much all of part one. And then part two is them as adults actually trying to deal with Pennywise the second time. The new films take a pretty different approach. Uh, So part one is entirely them as children. And then part two is them coming back to Derry. But it is so loaded with totally useless flashbacks. And it's fundamentally a big chunk of, of why it doesn't work. It's a lot of character development in the in part two that should have happened in part one. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I agree, but talk to me a little bit more about that. Like what, what is sure. the kind of character development that you have in mind here? So like, I mean that like characters are given like backstories or like history that like wasn't alluded to or wasn't like expressed at all in any way in part one that they did in part two. Uh, Bev's mom being dead and likely having died due to either like suicide or I don't know, probably postpartum depression, something like that. And her dad being like worked up about that. Never once explained like in part one, never once alluded to in part one, just like shows up randomly in a single scene in part two. Um, Fucking Wolf. What's his face? This character whose name I forgot. Uh, Richie's character being like in this like unrequited queer romance with eddie not explained even a little bit not even in like part two when it is like implied it's only ever implied like strongly implied but it's never like actually said i had a crush on eddie or i loved eddie or anything like that and in part one it's not even anywhere in the story like i'm fine with it being there obviously i'm a queer person i want more queer people but like i don't want it just to be tacked on in like a single scene at the end and never explained pretty much like things like that where it's just like this could have been like explained in the first half in in the first part if at all if it was necessary like you you shouldn't be like giving us these big like character details in throwaway like flashbacks in the second part of the movie where the second part of the movie in my opinion is supposed to be more focused on them as adults yeah yeah so there's i think a really deep-seated structural issue that it chapter two i think my feeling is that they made you know so they they made part one only about them as kids i actually really like that decision i I i think that's fine yeah, I think the miniseries, the pacing gets dragged down by, you know, it kind of repetitively is like, introduce a character, flashback, right. introduce character, flashback, and it does that seven times. Um, and I think all of the It movies have that fundamental problem of mm-hmm. kind of horror moment, character building, horror moment, character building, and they they all rinse and repeat that in a way that that is pretty frustrating over time. I will say that, like, for myself, the miniseries flashbacks didn't bother me a whole lot. I think only because, like, I interpreted that as, like, this is who this is now, and this is who they were before. And it's mostly following, like, the flashback. Not really, like, kind of mixing in and dipping, double dipping into, like, present, past, present, past, present, past, over and over again. At least not as much as, like, It Part 2 does. Yeah, yeah, like it part two feels to me 
like they didn't know what to do with the story kind of that they're yeah. like okay so everybody gets together in dairy and then they go to kill pennywise and then yeah. they're like well wait but we want to make this movie almost three hours long because we're dumb and thought that that was the right way to go yeah and so instead they end up padding the movie out enormously so each of them has to go find uh, a token yeah um, it's the seven MacGuffins of the film that basically don't add up to anything that we did not need. It's the seven MacGuffins that like gives us the unnecessary backstory that should have been in the first film, if at all. Yeah, they kind of have to like retcon in a lot to make the plot of part two work, which is insane because yeah. they came out two years apart, you know? Yeah. Um, I also think that just in storytelling, seven MacGuffins is too many it's a lot MacGuffins. Of MacGuffins. It's way too many MacGuffins. And yeah, I, uh, I guess we don't know if that was part of the novel or not. Um, right. And there's there's also this whole thing. Uh, it doesn't appear at all in the miniseries, but in it chapter two from 2019, there's the the ritual of Chud. Um, yeah, the ritual of Chud or Chode as well. Yeah, the ritual it. of Chode, um, as Chode. it should be named. Um, it actually that that is actually in the novel. I don't know how it works in or like how it's explained in the novel but i do know the ritual of chud is in the novel gotcha i you know i think it's something that like the miniseries did the smart thing by just skipping by that entirely because we end up having this weird kind of so the plot kicks off all the characters are in dairy um they're all scared they're all trying to decide if they want to stay or go and i think there's like solid tension there and then it spends the entire second act of the film essentially having them, uh, each one split up, go find a thing, have a scary moment, go find a thing, have a scary moment, go find a thing. And all of, almost all of those scary moments are in flashbacks. And we know they'll be fine because, you know, we're seeing them aged 40 going back to find this thing, right? There's right. even a line where, like, when Eddie is having his scary moment as an adult where he says, it's just a memory, it's fine. And that's... Essentially, I mean, I feel like the screenwriters like wrote that line and didn't realize that they'd made a horror film where like 80% of the scares are in flashbacks. It's just a memory. It's fine. You know? Yeah. yeah it's like, I, I, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this. Am I supposed to be scared of the, of the visuals? Cause the visuals aren't that scary anyway. Like the reason why like horror works is because it has stakes. Like you don't mm-hmm. know if this person is going to survive this like monster attack or not. But when you like have it all in a flashback, we know that they're going to be fine. Yeah, it's it's a three hour film with like zero stakes for like 80 percent of it. Um, There's only like ever one section of the film with stakes. That's the way end of the film when they're actually fucking finally fighting Pennywise. It's it is so aggravating to watch because it's it's formulaic and yeah, utterly lacking in stakes. It's it's a nightmare. And like to like talk about structure again, like the fact that they're adding in so many flashbacks, it makes you wonder where they fit in into the narrative of the story that we established in part one. Because like you mm-hmm. pointed out, I think when we were talking about it, that Bev said that she was like moving to Portland, like right after part one happened. Yeah, yeah. It's like after they've beaten Pennywise, she says, yeah, I'm going to Portland tomorrow or something. So we we assume yeah. that she's moving to stay with family because she like knocked her dad out with like a plank or something. I forget. Huh. Right, right. But then you're like, they have scenes in the flashbacks of It Part 2 that happen after they fight Pennywise, but Bev is still there. 
So then you're like, did she move back to Portland or not? And if she didn't, what did she do about the fact that she knocked out her dad? Is she still living with him or what? What is happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 just an utter mess in the chronology. Um, and it's really hard to place because it's all happening within the course of like a couple weeks, regardless. So like they don't look different and like mm-hmm. they're not constantly referencing like where they are or like, like you, you know, what moment their lives they're in. Like we just beat it, but oh no, my dad's still a monster or whatever. So yeah, so we yeah, we we really don't have any concept of where the uh the flashbacks fit in. And they don't tell us anything new anyway. You know, they're right. the none of the information we gain from the flashbacks is meaningful to pushing the story forward. They tell us new information, but like, yeah, like what you said, none of it means anything because it's not like it's not developed. Like Bev never talks about her mom, so we don't know where that fits in. Uh, Richie never ever talks about his sexuality so we have no Mm -hmm. idea where that fits in so all of it just feels like random useless information it's just like by the way fucking Richie's gay I guess cool yeah (laughs) so I feel like we should talk about thematically what's going on with with chapter two Um, right so it, it starts with a series of pretty horrific uh very real life moments oh yeah yeah um so right we begin with a hate crime of uh two gay men being attacked in Derry, and then one of them gets like eaten by pennywise very soon after that we see bev's partner uh being like horribly abusive and it feels like it's leading into a sexual assault scene and it's cut short because she like hits him with a bottle or something and leaves but i think that's very much set that is set for us to think about and then very soon afterwards we have stanley's suicide and so i think we have these three things that are all very very grounded in real life and horrific and i don't i don't feel good about them i i i don't don't either yeah no like like you you literally start part two with probably the most graphic and like dark scene potentially in the entire like it remake franchise where it's just like these very like realistic very just awful like hate crime that happens like right at the beginning and there's like no retribution of any sort of like the people that committed the hate crime or the people that were uh victims of it so it's just like as an audience member you're just like this horrible thing just happened and nothing good came out of it so okay now i feel bad and and like that never gets brought up ever again in the rest of the film yeah like i i feel like the filmmakers were trying to do something <laughs> like they were trying to somehow connect uh sort of like the i guess modern issues of like homophobia and things like that and being in a small town like dairy and trying to connect that with how horrific that is with Pennywise and that story of like trauma in small towns, things like that. Um, but I don't think they were very sensitive of the fact that this actually happens to people and that just depicting it in that way is traumatizing and not resolving it in any way, I should say, not resolving it in a, in a, in a way that feels like I don't know. It feels like I should be on the filmmaker side because it just kind of just feels like 
they're just putting in this hate crime just because why not which makes me feel shitty <laughs> yeah yeah but it's it's interesting right because I, I would say in general there are very few if any things that i think should not be portrayed in film or cannot be portrayed in film tactfully right. is my, right. my general feeling but i think that it's like tactfully i think is is like the keyword you know and and, and being thoughtful about what you're doing you know that i i feel like they're trying to make this case that Pennywise kind of mirrors the internal darkness of the actual people in Derry, but they don't make that thematic case throughout the film. It kind of just disappears. And so they go, I think they they're using um, a a hate crime for shock value pretty much and never trying to actually make it meaningful. And so you end up with this really, I think, very gross kind of feeling of um, something really horrible happening that is not justified uh, for telling the story. Yeah, no, I agree. And to an extent, uh, the same thing happens with uh, Bev being sexually assaulted and abused. Uh, even though that happens in the miniseries as well, uh, I feel like it's much more graphic, unnecessarily graphic in it part two. Um, and with uh, Stanley committing suicide as well. What bothers me most about that, though, isn't the fact that like he commits suicide because like I feel like that's fine, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I, it, it's just the way that it's justified in part two specifically as opposed to yeah. how it's justified in the miniseries because in the miniseries and in the book from what i know about it stanley commits suicide because he's traumatized and because he's horrified of what happened which is i think thematically makes sense mm-hmm. but in in it part two he commits suicide as a way to like give his friends a fighting chance against pennywise like kind of as a way to like take himself out because he knows he's the weakest link mm-hmm. which is kind of fucked up if you think about it it's pretty much just saying it's okay to kill yourself if it's for the greater good i don't know i don't know about that yeah when i think too you know so it chapter two ends with this letter from stanley explaining why basically right and it's just this really weird kind of he's like live your lives and there's like inspirational music playing and you know his friends like finally free of it and out, you know, living truly for the first time or whatever. And it just ends up being this really weird, um, the emotional tone of it feels really wrong to me. Uh, I mean, it feels I wrong think. because like, we know that like, after he wrote that, he killed himself. Yeah. So, like, I don't understand why this is supposed to be a happy moment. This is literally Stanley's suicide note. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I think, what it it it, it centers t- to me i think it comes down to like the the writers of the film wanted to deal with real life issues but weren't willing to put the plot time into dealing with those things thoughtfully and so you know i think the the hate crime scene at the beginning say you know we're not supposed to be like I think we're all we're supposed to be horrified by it, you know. Yeah. Um, it's 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 absolutely not taking the side of the abusers, but like because that scene is just utterly dropped and never uh, has any ramifications on the film, it just feels gratuitous and it's it's kind of traumatizing 
for or maybe re-traumatizing for uh, a group of people with a meaningful uh, thematic work. I agree, because like I, I I kind of compare this cold opening almost if you want to call it that to like mm-hmm. the the quote unquote cold opening in Scream, where it's just like Drew Barrymore being uh, stabbed to death by the the killer. And, and and I feel like there it works because it's like in this sort of like space where it's like unrealistic. Like obviously, like people have like invaded people's homes and killed them before, but like it's unbelievable that like someone would don this like costume and like threaten this person through the phone over and over again, and that they would like have this like kind of witty banter between them, and then they would get killed. Like it makes it unbelievable. But the way that, like, uh, the hate crime is depicted in It Part 2 is very realistic. Like, there are Mm. slurs, like, just thrown around. There's, like, very graphic depictions of, like, those two gay characters being bashed. And it's sad. It's it's a really fucking sad scene. Uh, So so that's kind of how I, 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 like, justify being kind of okay with, like, those sort of depictions that actually happen with people uh, when they're like brought to like an unbelievable extent uh, as opposed to like when it's more grounded in reality. Cause when it's more grounded in reality, you have to realize this happens to people and you have to be sensitive towards that. Otherwise you can come off as like an asshole. Yeah. And I, I think that like there's, there's, it, it's an interesting question. It's something I just like kind of want to think about for myself more, I guess of like, I am totally fine with horror movies being nasty and being brutal and being like rough to watch at times. Um, but I think that there is like, I think there are more ethical ways to do that. And I think that there, if you're going to portray things that are likely to like re traumatize people in your audience, I think you need a really fucking good reason. And I think it does that. Or I think chapter two does that in an utterly meaningless way. Mm -hmm. No, I agree with that. Definitely. Yeah, God, it's such a bad film. I just, <laughs> I'm just really genuinely shocked that the internet isn't full of like video essays being like, "What happened to it?" Chapter two. You I know? know, like, like I, I, I watched it part one, no, and like I, I already didn't like it, and like my main complaint with it part one was the like amount of nostalgia that there was. Like the amount of like, this is the eighties. Yeah. Come on guys. <laughs> New kids on the block, street fighter, like fucking Molly Ringwald. Who cares? <laughs> like there's just so many like eighties references that it gets like overbearing and unrealistic. That was my main complaint with it. Part one. Yeah. Uh, I, and I didn't like it, but I could get over it. Uh, it part two is like everything about it is bad. Like I can't think of like one good thing about it besides the acting. And that's literally it. Yeah. And even the acting, I mean, it's, it's generally good, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's not stand out enough to like save anything no. for me. You know? No, I um, mean, you'd have to be really stand out to save that movie. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> um, well, so let's think about then our pitches. Cause I, I think that like, that might be like a, the logical place for us to go. Right. Mm -hmm. um so how could you either adapt it overall in a way that 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 would work better um or possibly like what could you do to make the it chapter two not such a fucking mess uh literally anything else i think i would i would 
do uh, to part two kind of what I was expecting them to do in part two, which is just focus on like the characters as adults with like Mm -hmm. minimal to no flashbacks to them as children. Like we already have all of the backstory that we need because we watched part one. I'm thinking like Star Wars doesn't like need to reintroduce who Luke Skywalker is because you watched the movie already. You watched A New Hope already. You don't need it reiterated in fucking Revenge of the Sith or whatever the fuck. So just having the characters as adults, not needing any backstory, having them like meet up in Derry together, maybe like starting the movie with like like Mike calling everyone back together and then putting them all back in Derry. Uh, having them like have scenes where they're like, we know where they are in their lives now. Everyone comes back together in Derry. Uh, things like that. Kind of like what the miniseries did pretty much minus the flashbacks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think there's a lot. Part two of the miniseries has a lot of kind of shaky moments. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we haven't even talked about like the teen orgy from, from oh, the novel, fuck, right? Yeah. Um, how, do, how do we miss that? That's such a big thing. <laughs> well, so, so, yeah, I feel like we should have a whole segment. Like, how it adaptations deal with the teen orgy? <laughs> uh, not well, in either case. Yeah, yeah. So, so in chapter one, there's just this weird, like, someone is always touching Bev in, like, almost every shot she's in. And it's so, like, weird and uncomfortable. Like, there's, there's like, an intimacy between her and every other male character yeah, that just feels very like what is going on um, in the miniseries? You mean right? In the miniseries, yeah, 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 yeah. No, like she literally has this like weird sexual energy with literally everyone. Like I feel, I, I, if I remember right, like the second she meets Bill again as adult, she makes out with him, not knowing that he's married, and yep. her like recently leaving her husband and still telling everyone that she's married. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's its own whole whole thing. <laughs> but but I, I think for for all of the wobbliness that does exist in in part two of, of the miniseries, um, I think something that it does well is the characters are in dairy and then yeah. Pennywise is fucking with them. They're trying to decide if they're actually gonna be able to stay and take him on, and then the climax of the film is taking him on. And so by this point, right, we're done with the flashbacks for, for the most part. We're just focused on them kind of uh, getting themselves together to take on Pennywise. Um, right. And I agree. I think that's a better structure. And I think it would avoid that kind of constant uh, back and forth that keeps happening in these um, in these adaptations. And I feel like in part two as well, like there's a lot of justification for like, why are they doing this? Why are they staying in dairy? That's unnecessary. Like, uh, I remember like Bev having like when she was looking at the deadlights, apparently having this just like vision of like all of them dying and knowing that like if they didn't defeat Pennywise, they would all eventually die, which why is that necessary like in the in the miniseries like it's explained that like they're killing pennywise again because they don't want other people to get killed and i feel like that's a solid enough like reason why everyone's coming back to dairy and why they are killing pennywise because they're genuinely good people like having them be like we're coming back to dairy and staying in dairy and killing pennywise because we don't want to die makes them almost like 
I mean, understandable, but it also makes him feel a lot more selfish. Besides, like, Bill's, like, weird, like, relationship that he has, or, like, kinship, I guess, that he has with, like, this random child that he never learns the name of that gets killed by Pennywise. Like, none of them really care about, like, dairy, like, dairy citizenry at all. They just want to pretty much survive. Yeah, when the film wastes a lot of time establishing that Bev has had this weird kind of psychic moment or whatever, uh, or series of psychic moments, to create motivation that actually isn't all that necessary, I think. No. I, yeah, I, like, I think it's just, it's, it's just a waste of time in the film, essentially. Um, Pretty much, yeah. So here's my pitch. I think they need to drop the memory loss element. Um, okay. I'd be fine with that. Yeah, and and I, I think my feeling is so the memory loss is essentially a tool for exposition. That uh, mm-hmm. in the miniseries, you get a call from Mike, you have a flashback. We know the story now. You know, it, it yep. those flashbacks give us the the scope of what's happened, and then they move forward and actually deal with it. I think by the time when so when we when we're looking at the twenty nineteen it chapter two, there's this problem of by making them forget what happened, they essentially lose all the character development that they've done in part one. And it also means that the, the adult versions of the characters feel oddly flat because they don't remember any of the important things that happened in their youth. And they Mm -hmm. haven't had to spend the last 27 years dealing with like kind of the emotional fallout of that. So, so I think the, the adult versions of the characters are flat and then We've seen it chapter one. It came out two years before part two, right? So like the memory loss, we don't need that added exposition, like you said, right? Yeah. Um, Plus, like not to interrupt you, but like it's super like inconsistent what what memories are being lost. Because yeah. like it almost feels like in part two, like they they're all like, oh, I don't remember how I know you. Oh, I don't remember what happened on this fucking clown and shit. And then like most of the way through it, they're just like, they just drop that. They're just like, oh, now I remember everything. It feels weird. Like, it, it, it's never, like, established what it is specifically they don't remember, what it is specifically they still do remember, how they interpret everything that happened to them. Yeah, and it makes their motivations hard to track at times. Um, right. Or it's hard to follow within their actions what what the point is. Like, does mm-hmm. Bill remember Georgie dying? Right. And, like, if he does, how does he remember Georgie dying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's something that, uh, again, not having read the novel, it makes sense to me in that context that if mm. we're getting them both as children and adults at the same time, the memory loss gives us the ability to have uh, kind of an expanding understanding of the plot that that grows as the characters remember, right? So, like, yeah, when the characters remember something, we learn it for the first time, and so there's a, a natural kind of flow there. But when you've split them up into two separate films, the memory loss just becomes this weird crutch that the plot, or not even crutch, it's like a weight that the plot has to carry. Of like, oh, they don't remember, uh, so now we have to create new flashbacks. We have to um, kind of throw away any character development from part one because they don't remember those events anyway. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I would drop that entirely. And I also, uh, I don't think I was the person who suggested this. Uh, I think a friend of ours who watched the films with us did. Um, But if one of the characters had kids or some amount of the characters had kids, I think that we would have like a much more natural sense of 
you know, they're, you know, the, the losers club being older, having grown and struggled as people through their whole lives with a trauma returning. And then, you know, they have their own children as sort of a point of reference for their desire to help these other kids, you know? Yeah. So it's not just, um, you know, grown up Bill chasing around this teen boy being like, get out of dairy or you'll die. Cause like the, it, it feels weird and awkward. And I think that's supposed to mirror his loss of Georgie, but it, it feels so distant at this point that it's, it's the connection is just awkward. I, yeah, yeah, no, I would agree. I feel, um, I think again, one of our friends suggested this, that if like Mike had a child who was killed by Pennywise, like that would be a really good, like driving force for him to like call everyone back to dairy and be like, this thing fucking killed my child. We have to kill it now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's a weird thing I think to say as someone who hasn't read the novel, Mm -hmm. But I, I have this kind of gut feeling that part of the problem with all of the adaptations is trying to follow the novel too closely. Um, it feels like it. Like the, the memory loss thing especially feels like it would work in a novel, but it doesn't work in film. Yeah, yeah. It feels like a remnant of, of the original plot that they, they maintain because it was in the novel and they want to be true to the novel without thinking about how does that shape a film that is separate and discreet from part one mm -hmm. overall just that like chapter two isn't able to break free of chapter one in a mm -hmm. weird way you know like they have these huge actors playing the main characters but they keep cutting back to the child versions of them. You know, they have a, a story to tell with each of them needing to go and find their little trinket thing, but finding the trinket just goes back to a scare that they had as a child. You know, it, it, it feels like at no point is there, uh, you know, at no point does chapter two stand up by itself. It always kind of keeps jumping back mm. to the previous film. It almost feels like the filmmaker, Andrew Spaghetti or whatever. He, mm -hmm. I, I feel like he didn't have enough faith in the second film as opposed to like the first film. Cause like it, it almost feels like he wants to recapture like what made the first film successful. I don't, I don't want to say good because I don't think it's good, but successful because it was a very successful movie. So it was like if we have more of these child actors in the second part, that'll also make it successful. When I feel like that's not the reason why it was like popular. It was popular because like it was a legitimately like decent story. Like it didn't rely on anything else. It part two heavily, heavily relies on first of all, you watching it part one. Second, like it part one existing and the actors in it just being good actors. Yeah. Yeah. When it, I think maybe what it comes down to is it part one and it part two are tonally very different stories. Yeah. But it part two isn't able to accept that. Uh, that part one is kids in a rough place taking control of their lives. And it's them having summer adventures and stuff interspliced with clown murder. Mm. Chapter two, I think. And again, this is because I, I just really hate the memory loss. Um, chapter two, I think, is about people who've spent their whole lives dealing with the trauma of something that happened in their youth and deciding like once and for all, we need to end this and move forward with our lives. 
but that's not what it is. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and so it, it tries to capture, I think, that childlike adventure of, of chapter one by doing these flashbacks. But that, uh, that means that the film spends half of its time, probably more than half of its runtime, showing us stuff that we've essentially already seen. Yeah, pretty much. I don't know. I feel like you you explained it before already, but like the second half just feels so over bloated, uh, not just with the flashbacks, but just with like everything else that the filmmaker had to like put in there because like in the miniseries and I'm assuming in the book as well, like after their children, like not a lot of actual stuff happens besides them, like maybe revisiting a few places uh, and then fighting Pennywise. That that is the entire plot of um, them as adults, pretty much. So they had to like fill in things because they, I feel like at some point had the idea that they're going to split the movie into like children, adults, and then when they realize that there's not a lot of material to work with them as like adults, they had to fill that up with like more flashbacks and having them do more things because they needed a three-hour movie for some reason. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think this is true for both part one and part two, that mm-hmm. the length is just not really, it doesn't serve the film. Yeah, it's like I think, way, both films are way too long. Yeah, yeah, I think they're absolutely too long. And, and it, it, you feel the weight of that over time. Because um, yeah, I know, I think you're totally right. I mean, I think the uh the bully who's now grown up and has escaped from the like mental health facility where he's being held i think adds like a nice dash of tension and like a much more uh life or death sort of struggle to part two um i I think they probably could have leaned on that more is is sort of they should have because like he feels like a throwaway character in part two like in part one he felt like an actual like threat the entire time because he was kind of like there the entire time terrorizing the children and slowly becoming like a fucking murderer. Mm-hmm. And in part two, it's just like, ah, I'm going to kill some people and get out of the psychiatric institution. And now I'm going to attack these people twice and then get killed. And then in, in like the first like hour and a half of the runtime. Yeah. 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 And then we have this, you know, the entire third act, he's just utterly uninvolved in at that point. Right. So, Let's see if we can summarize our pitch for a better chapter two, because I'm, I'm kind of interested to see if we can put it all together. Okay. So let's say, so Mike has a child who goes missing and he realizes Pennywise is back and yes. he, cov- he calls the original Losers Club members, all of whom have spent their lives trying to escape from the, the trauma that they experienced. They come back to Derry, maybe somebody taking more, uh, persuasion than the others. Um, I think I'm down to maintain Stanley's suicide in this case because it, I think it still yeah. feels justified. Um, I think that's fine, yeah. And then they're simultaneously being kind of, I guess, haunted by Pennywise and then hunted by the bully that you know terrorized them as children. Also, I imagine continuing that debate of like, can we do anything? We thought we killed him before and we didn't. Does any of this matter? Is any of this meaningful? I feel like there's maybe like a nihilism there that would be fun to play with. Yeah. Um, and then the third act is them taking on Pennywise again. And we cut back the CGI budget because both films have way too much CGI stuff and it tends to look bad. They need to go back to curb stomping Pennywise like they did in the miniseries. 
oh my God, we didn't even talk about like the <laughs> end of chapter two, the way that they actually defeat Pennywise is just trying to make him feel it's emotionally alive. small. So he becomes Pretty physically much. small. So they just, they just bully Pennywise. <laughs> <laughs> the solution, if you're bullied and traumatized, the solution to that is to bully and traumatize them back. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, thematically <laughs> just terrible and really stupid, but on camera in the film, the point where they just band together and all they do is just be like, you're just a clown. You're dumb. Yeah. It's so painfully cringy. You know, it's, it's awful. It's, so it's so bad. bad. It's so bad. It's so strange. Like they could have just done this from the beginning and they wouldn't have had to have lost Stanley and Eddie if they just insulted the clown. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something I really appreciate as much as like the end of the miniseries looks terrible and like is really janky. There's a point where they just knock Pennywise over and start like ripping his like crab legs out. And it's pretty brutal feeling, even though it's obviously it just like a plastic puppet. They're just beating the shit out of Pennywise. <laughs> yeah. And I think that like there's like a weird sort of thing that like they like massively cut back like the brutality and how they actually finish off Pennywise. Mm-hmm. And so it feels so like anticlimactic when it happens. It it does. It, it's bad. It's real bad. And like, they, I, I don't like the insistence of them, like keeping Pennywise as like this weird, like insectoid creature. I'm fine with that. I don't like the insistence of them keeping his face as like a clown. Cause then it just looks like a weird clown centipede hybrid instead of like what's supposed to be this, like almost Lovecraftian alien. That's like horrific and trying to feed yeah, you know, I I have mixed feelings about the kind of like true form of of Pennywise. I, mean, um, I don't think it translates very well either way to film. Yeah, but I like m- more him being this like fully formed alien, if anything. Yeah, I think he's maybe most interesting to me at his most kind of impressionistic. Like in um. In the newer films, there's the thing where, like, sort of his face peels away and he has this huge kind of mouth. It's almost like a, like, alligator's mouth, but with teeth all the way through it. And mm-hmm. that, to me, is really cool because it feels kind of, it feels so much more unique. You know, he's not just another, like, creepy clown archetype or werewolf archetype right. or, you, you know, the the monsters that we're used to seeing. I think when he turns into the full on kind of crab monster thing, for me, it starts to feel like it's another genre entirely again, or it's like, yeah. oh, now this is almost like a sci-fi sort of feel. And I, I, for me, I'm not a fan of that change. Right. I just don't like that he turns into that and still has the clown head. Cause I think that looks stupid. If he just stayed as a clown, I'd be fine with that. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's just like, I think that there might be like a few more iterations of that design that could have been done to find something that fits better. Cause yeah, I agree. Like there's a point where like the clownness starts to feel weird. Like if is like, why is his true form a clown? Uh, essentially if he's right. also like a alien creature. Although I feel like if we did that, it would be like a rehash of like how part one ended where it's just like Pennywise dancing threateningly at you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's bad. It's real bad. I want to know, though, what is your opinion on, like, Audra, Bill's wife, not being present at all 
in it part two because she to me is an interesting character yeah you know it's hard because she appears in the miniseries but so little that i'm kind of like why is she there and then she we do see her at the beginning of part two because she's an actress in the film that he's writing Mm -hmm. and then she never reappears i kind of i guess what what i wonder um Again, in maybe like my rewrite of the story, I think we would spend more, maybe a little bit more time in their lives before they get the call. And if she appeared more than having her come back could be interesting. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I guess I have mixed feelings because in in both cases, she appears and then disappears. And, you know, I guess she is kidnapped by Pennywise in the miniseries. But that feels so tangential and especially because like the romance or like the triangle between Bill, Beverly and Ben is so much more forward than like anything to do with his marriage in, in, in both cases, I'm sort of skeptical that she even needs to exist as a character. No, I agree. I I feel like one of the few things part two did better than the miniseries is that they didn't really have Audra there at all. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, they still did have her for like five seconds, which I don't think was even necessary. I would have been fine with just Bill not having a wife. That would have made more sense to me. That said, I really love the actress who plays her in the miniseries. <laughs> I love her so much because I can't point out where her like accent's from. She's supposed to be British. I don't remember where Bill's living after like after he leaves Derry somewhere in England. I think. Birmingham I don't fucking remember so like I'm assuming her accent is supposed to be British but like it it just moves around oh, every yeah. scene that she's in she's suddenly like Eastern European and then she's suddenly like I don't know what else but like she's never just British and I love that <laughs> yeah no I think that's um yeah yeah it, it is it is pretty fun and they try to like set up this like weird subplot for like a good five seconds in the miniseries where it's just like, I don't know. I don't remember who it was like her publisher or, or like uh, Bill's publisher, or, like film dude. I don't fucking remember is like there. And he's like, where's your husband? And it's like, I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah, it's very much. Um, somebody once described storytelling to me as like you sort of it's a series of like open and closed loops so you like open the loop of like bill is married and has to leave to go to Derry, and then in the miniseries that loop is sort of closed when his wife actually follows him to Derry and gets kidnapped um right or maybe it actually closes when he saves her sort of um and i think that like particularly the 2019 chapter two is full of loops that are opened and never closed. And so it feels really unsatisfying in that way. Um, And that might be where I struggle with bringing her in. Um, Mm -hmm. I also feel like a lot of these characters would probably be divorced. You know, like I imagine they have like this insane story that they can't tell anyone because no one would believe them or people would just think they're bonkers. And so it would be really hard to maintain relationships. Some of them are divorced. I don't remember which ones, but like mm-hmm. it's mentioned like in the extremely questionable Chinese restaurant that they're in, <laughs> that whole scene in both films. Uh, some of them were talking about the fact that they were divorced and some of them mm-hmm. were talking about the fact that they never got married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's that feels the like the most believable option for for my image of these characters when they're grown up. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think any of them would have like 
fairly happier, stable, like relationships with other people when they're older. And I imagine that like if you watched it part two without watching the miniseries, you'd completely miss the fact that Bill's married. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I think that like both films have this weird kind of they they put Bill in this love triangle with Bev and Ben, but none of the none of the adaptations really question sort of the the weirdness of the fact like he is married, right? Yeah. Um he has a and, wife. Yeah, yeah, like it's it's not really made problematic and that's not a struggle for him as a character. And so regardless, it's just kind of like either have him be not married or like deal with that. But don't do this mid zone where he's like married, but also making out with Bev sometimes. But also it doesn't end up, you know, ever mattering. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It makes the love triangle feel a little sketch because the entire time you're like, I don't think Bev should end up with Bill because he's married. So, yeah. And then she does end up with Ben. But like, yeah. Bill doesn't seem to care. <laughs> like no, after really. they tease that like love triangle through the whole film, it just never actually matters. And the characters never actually no. struggle as a result of that. No, like as adults, like it's never, it, it, it's not very like hardcore established that Bill has any feelings at all towards Bev besides the fact that she's hot pretty much. Yeah. And like in part one, it is a little bit more like established mm-hmm. that like he obviously has feelings for her. We were just supposed to like forget that entirely by part two. Yeah. <laughs> well, Kevin, do you have any last thoughts on these adaptations of it? Um, I still prefer the miniseries to either it part ones or part twos for multiple reasons. Uh, I feel like it's hard to replace Tim Curry as Pennywise mm-hmm. just in general. You can't get a better kiss me fat boy than uh, Tim Curry's. Kiss me fat boy. <laughs> kiss me fat boy. Hiya, Georgie. Uh, Hiya, Georgie. Oh, that was good. Thank you. I try. Uh, but yeah, uh, it part one is passable. It's to me like a generic, not great horror movie, but like it's, I'm not offended by it. Uh, part two is I'm going to go out on a limb and say maybe my least favorite movie we've watched so far. It might be my least favorite as well, actually. Like, I, I just think it's so utterly, like, wrong-headed in its approach to every moment, and it's so much longer than I think any movie that we've yeah. watched. That it, I it, feel like it's... Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. And I also feel like it's legitimately harmful. <laughs> like, it's unethical as a film in some parts where I'm just like, this shouldn't even exist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Return to the Telepodcast is a production of Silent Machine Studios, featuring music by My Silent Machine. If you enjoyed this episode, like, subscribe, and do whatever else you usually do with podcasts, I don't know. Thank you for listening.